Welcome back to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast. My name is Henry Rivera, and I will be the host for the show. In this episode, I am joined by the lovely Stevie Jasuda, who is the Dean of Instruction at KIPP New Orleans Schools. Throughout our conversation, Stevie and I discuss her educational journey, how elementary school students are being affected by the pandemic, and what educators can do to prepare for next year. I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it. See you on the other side. Here we go. Hello, hello, everybody. Today is a beautiful day. Any day is a beautiful day when you have a guest like the marvelous Stevie Jasuda. Stevie is the Dean of Instruction at Kip New Orleans Schools. She's been in the field of education for eight years, and after three years of teaching, she grew a passion for instructional coaching. Not only has Stevie coached for Kip during the school year, but she's also coached the new core members of Teach for America during the summers. Her experiences with Teach for America have also allowed her to rise to leadership as a school director where she has led numerous core members to complete their summer training with much love and enthusiasm. Stevie, 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 I'm so glad you're with me. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, it, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I believe you and I met during one of those uh, institute trainings. I saw that you had, you know, for lack of better words, you had a flock of people with you who said a lot of good things. And I was like, I got to get to know this girl. Yeah. uh, Yep. That would definitely describe my Institute personality. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What, what year did we meet at Institute? I believe it was 2018. It was. Okay. Well, so that was my literal flock year. So every year, and I learned this from a school director that I worked with, every Institute year had an animal or a creature assigned to it. And so my 2018 year was our flamingo year. So I I literally had a flock of friends with me. So maybe that's what made me think of flock because I do, I do remember, I mean, the difference though, is that, you know, there are some people who like to lead by example, some people who like to just like, you know, like be this, uh, I don't know, very military like kind of leadership where everything has to be perfect. But I just remember you were very bubbly um, very positive, very loving. And it seems to me like the people who were under your leadership responded very well to that. Thank you. Thank you. Why don't we start by first telling the people about who you are? So can you tell us a little more about yourself and who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Southern California in a suburb of Los Angeles, Manhattan Beach, California. And was, yeah, right? 310. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And was like so blessed with my parents providing me um, so many amazing opportunities as I was growing up. And uh, even though I was in one of the most well performing, high performing school districts in Southern California, still did have a private education growing up. And when I went to college, I went to school to. I actually majored in art, art history and public relations, because I don't want to be a starving artist. But I I had so many art internships under my belt that I ended up needing a public relations internship. And so I took one with Teach for America, because I was not interested in public relations as an actual career, but the nonprofit sector in doing PR was, was interesting to me. And so after that summer interning with Teach for America, that made me go, oh, I think I could do this. I could do this for like, two years and then go do the art thing. And 
nine years later, here we are. So, um, you know, I taught in Atlanta for two years with Teach for America and then located to New Orleans where I've been teaching for going on seven years. And it's been, it's such a calling, like education really is. It's a passion, it's a calling. And I can't believe that this is where I am now. Yeah, one of my favorite trivia facts about you is, as you majored in art history, I mean, that that major hasn't gone to waste, right? I, I know that you uh, you do some some touring out here in New Orleans where it's very big, and so you get to talk about some of those things. You want to tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so for four years, I am now a retired ghost tour guide. Um, I lived in the French Quarter, which right is our historical neighborhood here in New Orleans um, and there's lots of street performers, lots of educators and lots of freelancers but I worked with them, a ghost tour guide company where we focus on the historical and the haunted. So as my side hustle as a teacher, you know, everyone needs one, I would go do ghost tours in the evening. <laughs> so you wanted to major in, I'm sorry, you decided to graduate with a degree in the arts, work in a nonprofit. But what exactly got you into education? I know you said you did your internship with Teach for America, and it was it from there that you were like, okay, I'm doing this, or or what happened? Yes, great question. So when I did that internship, I, it wasn't just like I interned at the Teach for America offices. I interned at Institute. So I what my first Institute was actually before I was even a teacher or a core member. I was on the operations side. I was an operations coordinator, and I was essentially this. I mean, this is how old I am maybe but like we were sorting student books we were printing student packets because nothing was digital teachers were getting these huge spiral bound books and I was in charge of making these huge spiral bound books with their lesson plans and whatnot and um it was I remember thinking so it was in Atlanta there were 10 other operations coordinators were all little college grads or soon to be college grads and looking around at the 600 teachers and the 100 staff members that were there for the sole purpose of this one big mission. And it was the first time that I'd been part of something like that, that was working towards something so much more altruistic that made me stop and go, okay, I think I want to be something that's bigger than just me. And so I applied to Teach for America my senior year of college first round that you could like as soon as that application opened I my application was in um because I knew I wanted to do teach for America so that was that was a huge catalyst for me okay got it so you know I don't know why I was under the impression that you you interned with teach for America after you graduated you interned with teach for America before you graduated yes yes okay and would highly recommend to like for that as a college experience because it really it really did shift my path significantly it was it was very neat fantastic so well i'm gonna can i extend a little bit upon yeah that? absolutely okay so after doing teach for america for for my two years my original intention was teach for america two years i'm out and and we know we i mean that happens we know that's something that happens especially with teach for america we see higher turnover with newer teachers and i was very lucky to be placed at a school Um, in Atlanta that was a founding school so I was surrounded by other teachers who were growing going through a lot of the same growing pains as I was because we were growing the school and that's hard for any teacher regardless of how many years you have in the game and I thought after my second year you know I've never not been good at something which sounds conceited I hear it myself but like it really bothered me how I didn't feel like I had done enough 
my first two years. And so I um, did start looking at schools that were specifically developing new teachers. And that's how I found KIPP. Um, I applied to KIPP in Atlanta, and I had a lot of friends who were teaching in New Orleans through Teach for America. And so I checked, and a friend said, just check the box for New Orleans. If anything, you'll come visit. And if you like it, you like it. If not, that's fine. So I felt, so I applied to KIPP Atlanta and KIPP New Orleans. So KIPP Atlanta and KIPP New Orleans actually ended up giving me the exact same role. They offered me the same position, third grade ELA. At KIPP Atlanta, I would be founding um, the, their third grade class. So they'd have rising second graders who would be their founding third grade class. KIPP New Orleans, it was a fully established school all the way K through eight. And KIPP New Orleans was also offering relocation assistance. So like I was truly breaking even in terms of the offers that they were offering me. And I was really, really torn because Atlanta, I love Atlanta. I had not, didn't mean to leave Atlanta. Um, and my best friend from Los Angeles did call me and she said, okay, you don't have a kid and you're not paying a mortgage. Go to New Orleans. And if you don't like it, you can go back to Atlanta. Well, for three years, I think I told my principal every year, okay, this is great, but I'm, I got to go back to Atlanta. This really, I, I really appreciate this opportunity that you've, I, I have to go back to Atlanta. And finally, um, two, two, three years ago, I finally stopped singing, singing that song. And I said, okay, I'm in, I'm in New Orleans for a while. You got me. You can keep me around. So yeah, very nice. that's my little accident and how I ended up in education for so long. <laughs> so here's, here's something that comes to mind. Uh, one thing you mentioned is that you've, you're someone who uh, you're used to always being good at what you do, right? No matter what it mm. is that you do. But right now we've all been challenged with this new way that we've had to teach right now that we've all had to teach from home. Um, it seems like no one is particularly good at this yet, at least not that I know of. So how mm-hmm. have you and your say like people who you're coaching have had to make your adjustments? Yeah. Lots of adjustments. Um, I think, and I think that's been a huge aspect of what's been so challenging with distance learning is a lot of teachers who feel very confident in their practice have had to completely scrap everything they know yep. about teaching. And I will say on one hand, we are seeing a lot of teachers thrive, especially teachers that I know and work with on the elementary level. We know that a lot of elementary work is not just our students, but also our families and parents. And so our most successful teachers while we've been in distance learning have been the ones that have had already had an established really strong family and parent relationships. And those are the families and kids that we see showing up every day, getting work done, having a a lot of handholding, which is a lot of what elementary education is um, happening at home with guidance from the teacher. It is interesting to think about distance learning as a teacher and, and as a coach, because I think what distance learning has, turn teaching into in this moment is a lot more coaching than actual direct instruction teaching. It's a lot more guiding and positioning and a lot less I do, you, we do, you do style of teaching. So it has been an, it has been interesting as uh, someone who's a little more removed from the classroom to watch from this perspective. So how, how do you do it? Like, do you have to, do you have to sit in the, in the Zoom calls of other teachers and, and then give feedback <laughs> after that? Or what does that look like now? <laughs> That's a good question. So we have not mandated Zoom calls at our school. Um, a lot of teachers have started doing class Zoom calls. 
um, we've allowed it as like something that's elective and something that teachers can opt in, opt into, families can opt into. We also know that like a huge challenge with distance learning is not just the work, but also access. And so while our schools have mobilized and our city has mobilized to get kids the Chromebooks and technology that they need, we're also running into barriers in terms of like Zoom doesn't work on the school Chromebooks or Google Hangouts work, but it's you can't do this or that with the software. So there's also a whole layer of IT on top of yeah. all of this distance learning stuff. So that's a big part of it. For sure. That like part of the things that make teachers feel like not, not as competent, right? Is having these technological yeah. problems that sometimes are really outside of our control. Like uh, yeah. if I've, I've heard so much from other teachers as well, say that Zoom just acts really funny or it lags a lot on their Chromebooks. And I mean, that's got to be the most fr frustrating thing, right? You're the host of these meetings. <laughs> and, and okay, I'm kind of switching gears here because I, I will say uh, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to someone from elementary school because I, I had this assumption that elementary schools were also um, teaching through Zoom or the teachers were te teaching through Zoom. And mm -hmm. clearly that's not necessarily the case for you all. So how, mm -hmm. how, are, you, how are you all doing it? Yeah, great question. So we, so a part of my role as Dean of Instruction, so my role shifts when we first shift to distance learning because not only am I a Dean of Instruction, but I'm also a curriculum writer. So my job is to be a content expert, but I also write the content that I get to be an expert on, which great, awesome, I love it. It's truly my passion when it comes to education. So as soon as we close schools on Friday, right, it's a madhouse dash to the copiers. We're getting printed packets sent home because we're sure we're closed for a month, but maybe we can use these hard, hard copies and packets for two weeks as we, the adults and curriculum writers, figure out what exactly our plan of attack is going to be. And that I remember just the first week that we closed, it was the most stressed, but also busy that I was. Um, with distance learning because our first first thing was to figure out what is our curriculum going to be? What are we going to focus on? Especially with the time restrictions that we were being given from um, OPSB and the state. So our kids, elementary kids, were not to exceed more than 60 minutes of daily learning. So that's all content. So that's ELA, that's math, that's science, that's social studies. So first we have to break down those minutes. Then we have to break down, okay, so what will direct instruction look like? We honestly played around with three different ideas before we launched something two weeks later. Um, so I will say I wrote three different curricula in a week <laughs> before we launched something two weeks later. Holy moly. Yeah, so it was quite a headache. And we're playing around with PlayPosit, which is a website that allows you to embed audio on top of PowerPoint slides. So I'm doing a voiceover of a lesson with this PowerPoint that I've made. We're we were looking at Khan Academy. Um, we were looking at No Red Ink, which is a grammar website. And we did end up doing a marriage of actually all three of those websites. And we have, we ended up with like an AD schedule. So on an A day, you're doing humanities work with social studies and reading. On a B day, you're doing STEM work with math and science. Um, science and social studies, we're using PlayPosit with slides and voiceover recordings. You also can stop 
at certain points and have kids answer questions as you go in a play posit. So those were their checks for understanding. Um, Mass ended up going full Khan Academy, which, you know, we know Khan Academy is actually really great, especially in Mass because it has that clear video and then checks for understanding between the different videos. ELA was the trickiest one because we had to stop and think to ourselves, well, what are we going to do here in terms of reading? Um, what's unique about the COVID-19 crisis is that it hit at a time of our school year where content is actually wrapped up because we're gearing up for state testing. So we had already learned about the American Revolution. We've already learned about the civil rights movement. There really wasn't any more that we were doing in social studies, especially in fourth grade that does American history. We were getting gearing up for review. Same with math, gearing up for review. Science, gearing up for review. In ELA, we don't teach set skills in isolation because the research actually tells us that as readers, we don't sit there reading a book and go, mm, I'm characterizing the character or mm, I can summarize the main idea. We as reader are doing, readers are doing all of these discrete skills at the same time. So our curriculum doesn't follow that neat flow, especially in elementary school, we're still working on phonics and phonemic awareness. And we know that phonics, the research is telling us like phonics and phonemic awareness is not best taught in, in um, embedded curriculum, but it's best taught through direct instruction. So we really were scratching our heads with ELA for a while. Um, and we landed on focusing on grammar because it's not some syntax and um, semantics is not something that we do a lot of direct instruction with, but it is something that we know that our kids need. So it was one of those, well, it can't hurt if kids are getting this work now, but what else can we do? So that's, that's where we landed. It was not a perfect solution. I think to find a perfect solution in this um, crisis has not been something that's necessarily been the best practice, if not best practice, but I guess, I don't know, the norm. It's been yeah, tricky. I mean, the, the truth is like, none of us really know what the best solutions are anyway, mm -hmm. right? So, so for all we know, like you, you could be doing the, the best thing. And I'm, and I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's, that's why y'all came up with three different ways to, to approach this, right? <laughs> so they're trying to find the best solution yeah. to, to the current situation. And so far, I mean, we're reaching the end of the school year. So from from what you guys came up with and in, 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 in terms of execution and what you're seeing, I don't think you get to collect as much data, but uh, from what you've seen so far, um, what would you say uh, this, for lack of better terms again, is like, what would, what would you say the success rate is on this? So we, I mean, looking at the data that we have, we had about, we were hovering between 40 to 50% of students completing their online assignments. And that was across K through four. And I actually think those numbers were pretty similar in middle school as well for us at KIPP New Orleans. I would even tell you in high school about the same too. Yeah. Um, so we know that we're getting about half of our kids to get our online work done. What is interesting, my principal said this to me um, as I was worried about our completion numbers, is think about your average classroom though. We have about 30% to 50% of our kids who are there and ready and focused and able to engage. We also know we have about 30% of our kids who do need a, a little more engagement from their teacher because there's other things on their minds. And then we know that there's another 30% of our kids who need extra, extra support. 
So when you think about the breakdown that way of just a typical classroom on a typical day, I'm actually pretty excited that we're closer to 40 and 50% because that means that we do have strong relationships at home. We do have strong supports to make sure that our kids' learning doesn't stop. I had also uh, wanted to talk to you about is, is I guess, the, the development, right, of like the child development aspect that I think we're, we're missing out on. Do you think a lot of that development has been lost during this transition to virtual learning? So it is very interesting to think about what we provide as teachers, especially in an elementary school setting, and how this is going to impact our kids in the future. So right off the bat, I think we're the, this closing school for two months in the COVID-19 crisis is going to significantly impact our student social emotional learning and academics in an aspect. So if we think about social emotional needs, I'm thinking about like the routine that we get put into a classroom day and the comfort and the necessity that that establishes, especially for our, our young learners who are learning to articulate a, a uncomfortable feeling from a comfortable feeling. I think about our kids who are in the middle of RTI processes and were about to get the support that they needed, but that's all been put on hold or we're now doing those meetings virtually. I selfishly, as an instructor, have my hands specifically in the intervention world in elementary. And I know that if we think of student reading growth during the year as a series of curves, we hit a really high curve of growth at the end of the first semester in December, where we're like, our kids are on track, they are becoming strong readers, and our kids who aren't hitting that bar of growth, we reevaluate for, and we come back in the second semester in January and say, now it's your turn to grow. And I know that that specific group of learners are kids who weren't growing in the first semester and needed additional support in that second semester. We're just about to hit that curve in March. And now that schools have been closed, I really worry about their reading growth. And we know that the summer slide is something that happens and we're going to have double the amount of time for summer slide. And so that's, those are the two things that keep me up at night. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely something because it, it gets, it gets passed on and on, right, to the next, to the next grade and to the next grade until mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're, they're in high school and they're having a really hard time. Um, I mean, this is me as a high school teacher. I see some that are having a really hard time with basic reading comprehension. So that was something that has been on my mind as well, right? What's, what's going to happen to these students who are just learning these basic fundamental skills and, uh, you know, they're losing out on some of that. And there's yeah. been and there's been like some some debate on this, right? Because there's there's been some educators that I've spoken to that I've said, well, you know, like it's it's only a couple of months. It's like one percent of like the amount of time that they normally spend in the classroom total. Um, but I think you know there are some stages in your education that are so crucial, and elementary school has got to be one of them. You know, particularly in those earlier grades. Which, by the way, when you are as as the dean of instruction, are you uh, are you coaching all elementary school? Or are you focused on on um, particular grades? Mm-hmm. Good question. I support specifically second through fourth grade. I come to the table a lot for conversations with K through four, 
Um, actually, I come to the table every time with conversations for K, K through four, but I specifically coach teachers in second through fourth grade. But we also know, to your point, that if the reading, if, if our development doesn't start early, then it's, we have gaps as we continue on. So, right, like in pre-K and K, we need to know our syllables, our onset rhyme, our phonemes. So that when we get to first grade, we're able to know our alphabet and our phoneme graphing correspondences, because by third grade, you need to be able to know your morphemes and deriv de uh, I'm going to say this word wrong, derivational, nope, we're just going to stick with morphemes. You have to be able to manipulate those morphemes so that you're looking at anti and know, oh, that means no or not, because you already know A and N go together to make the an right you need to know these sounds in order to figure out the meaning of a word and so if that doesn't start at the very beginning of your educational career then where are you come middle school high school okay stevie so as we get to the end of our conversation um in your opinion you know as a coach what's something that you think teachers can do to best prepare for next year the two things that I do think about do break down into those social, emotional, and academic buckets. I'm thinking a lot about um, what we do innately as teachers and how we are going to, going to need to amplify that should we go back to school wearing masks. Mm. I'm thinking about my kindergarten teachers who use facial expressions specifically to teach, hmm, I'm sad, or hmm, that made me sad here's what we can do next time, or, oh, that made me glad. But if the child can't see a half of your face, how are you going to be amplifying that um, in your classroom? So on one hand, it is like teachers really ramping up their teaching personality and really getting ready to be actors and actresses on their, in their classroom stages. And I'm thinking of like a stomped foot and a balled up fist and saying, ooh, that made me mad, so that our children can continue to develop their social emotional learning. The research is already coming out saying that kids are impacted by the fact that they are not seeing facial expressions from strangers. And that's huge. We use that. We use nonverbal communication all the time as, as, as um, adults and humans. So that's something we have to be going into the next school year thinking about. And yeah, that's something I definitely didn't think about. And to think, to think that some of them may or may not go on to middle school and high school, not being able to read social cues is, that's, that's kind of scary. Yeah. And then the other aspect, the current hill that I'm dying on is around phonics. We know, like I said before, like the school curriculum was pretty much over in terms of content, but we are missing two months work of phonics and phonemic awareness. So I'm currently team, everyone is doing phonics next year. So it doesn't have to be whole group, but everyone is going to need some, some work in terms of their decoding and their phonemic awareness. Um, that's not something that I've previously been very vocal about or very adamant about, more so around implement this curriculum with fidelity, make sure that our kids who are struggling readers get it. All of our kids are going to be struggling readers when we come back to us because the reality is we've missed a lot of reading. Parents are amazing and our families have been wonderful with making sure that our kids are still reading, but direct systematic instruction has been missing for two months now. And we're going to have to come back and come back strong when we go back in the fall. 
Yeah. And let's say from either optimistic or pessimistic point of view, do you think that will be recovered? I don't know. I mean, the other thing that makes me half laugh and half tear my hair out is the idea of getting four and five-year-olds to keep masks on in a classroom setting or I stay know. six feet away from each other. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've been joking about like putting suspenders on hula hoops or putting them in pool floaties because how else are we going to teach our littlest to socially distance? I know. I've, I, I definitely thought about that. I mean, I've just thought about how uh, I don't know how you have to have just a really strong immune system to be a teacher of these little ones, right? Because they're they're not necessarily the most sanitary. <laughs> well, and I will say right before schools closed, the week before when the threat was getting very real, our nurses were so amazing at the school doors, coming into classrooms. And the first thing we did was start educating our kids around hygiene and, and around like, yes, here's how you use hand sanitizer the right way. Here's why you have to rub it until it's dry. Here's why you need to wash your hands with soap. Here's how long you need to wash your hands with soap. Who can help me think of a 20 second song? And so I, I do think like there's a lot to be gained here because like teaching hygiene is something, you know, that teachers often do. And so it was wonderful to share that load because the uh, crisis made it a reality. On the other hand, like a heartbreaking anecdote, yesterday and today we did a drive through kindergarten graduation and it was the most adorable thing that you've ever seen but it was soul crushing for our little five and six-year-olds to come running out of their cars wanting to run into the arms of their teachers and their teachers having to deny their hugs it was heartbreaking so that's going to be something that's also going to i mean when we talk about social emotional growth how are kids going to process that that's a, that's a form of trauma and we're all going to be experiencing that but i think our littlest are a success specifically susceptible to that. Is there is there anything else you'd like your listeners to know before we wrap it up? As a coach, so I'm putting my coach's hat on. Um, I think that teachers, especially now as the school year is winding up, are looking for some purpose or for something to do in these uncertain times. And so my biggest plug right now is to engage in all of the free PD that you can. We are very lucky that a lot of different experts in our field of education are offering free opportunities for us to continue our growing. Personally, I'm taking part in an AIM Pathways programming, so I'm learning about how our brain wires speech into into reading and it's fascinating to see how all of these different components of the science behind reading work but i know that amplify reading is hosting a free seminar on may 21st Tim, timothy shanahan who is like my reading guru and in my head my imaginary husband don't tell my fiance um Tim, timothy shanahan is offering a 40 dollar seminar, which normally his seminars are $200. And so like now, especially as we're getting into the summer, but these things aren't necessarily open to take advantage of that time for free PD. For me, I've found a lot of purpose in taking the time that I currently have and putting it into this project. And I feel like I'm becoming a better educator for it. So that's my plug. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll put those in the show notes uh, in case anyone does have an interest in, in partaking in that. That's fantastic. 
Yeah. Well, Stevie, before we wrap up the show, we are going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. So what I want you to do is just listen to the question, answer, answer it to the best of your ability, but really don't think about it too much. Just let it, let it come out, whatever comes to your head. Okay. All right. All right. So question number one, what's your favorite food? Nachos. Nice. I don't think that's my actual answer, but that's the first thing that came to yeah, mind. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Nachos. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your favorite Star Wars character? Ooh, um, okay. Uh, contentious answer, Anakin Skywalker. Nice. What's the best museum to visit in New Orleans? Ooh, um, the Ogden Museum is my personal favorite. Where, where's the best place to get a cocktail in New Orleans? Okay, it's a toss-up between Effervescence, which is my favorite champagne bar, but they also do really delicious champagne cocktails. And then my new favorite is Cavan, which is down the street on Magazine Street. Also, it's a wine cocktail champagne situation. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, I will take your recommendations. What's your favorite movie? Um, The Princess and the Frog. What's something you carry with you at all times? That's a good question. Okay, my shallow answer is lipstick. My real answer is a necklace that my fiance gave to me. Great. What do other people say that you're good at? I would say, so it's two things. I think people know that I would bring a good sense of humor to a situation. And then tangibly, I'm sure somebody would recommend me to paint or draw something, but I'll probably deny that request. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your favorite city to visit or that you have visited? Mm, Florence, Italy. I, I, I smiled at that one because like that, that seems to be a, a fan favorite. People love Florence. Really? Yeah, yeah. I studied abroad there for six months, so I'm biased. Nice. Okay. If not for coaching, what other career would you have done? Okay. So real career that I would done is I would be, uh, <laughs> I would be a museum or art curator. So I would be like Charlotte from Sex and the City and like have big art parties. But my like dream career that I could never do, but I would love to do would be an animator for Disney. Mm. Okay. In terms of music, who are you listening to these days? That's a good question. Um, the Chloe and Hallie song that just came out is currently on repeat on my phone. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not actually a huge music person. I am a podcast person. Um, and here's where I'm going to show my nerd. My fiance and I are currently making our way through a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called The Adventure Zone. So, <laughs> Great, great. What is, okay, in your opinion, what does someone need to be truly happy? Um, I think that they need to surround themselves with people who also want to make them, want them to be happy. And I think that's simple and wise. I love it. All right, Stevie, before we go, uh, if someone wants to learn more about the work that you do or they want to get in touch with you, where can they go? What can they do? Absolutely. So you can follow me on Instagram. My teacher handle is Lipstick and Lesson Plans. Um, but you can follow me on all, all other social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Stevie Jasuda. That's C-V-J-A-S-U-T-A. Great. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes as well. Stevie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I very much enjoyed our conversation. I learned a lot. And uh, I, I, now I want to I wanna interview some more elementary school teachers. Absolutely. I, I'm, I have such a big smile on my face. This has been lovely. So thank you so much. Yes, of course. Well, Stevie, as always, uh, I hope you and I stay in touch, not just for podcast interviews. Um, hopefully once the city opens up, we can go get a good cocktail somewhere. Absolutely.
Absolutely. I totally agree. All right, Stevie. Well, you have yourself a nice day and I'm sure we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you, friend. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks a bunch for listening to this entire episode. Remember that you can always contact me through email at theeducationmovement20 at gmail.com or through Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at edumovement20. Any likes or follows are always welcomed and much appreciated, but even more importantly, your feedback. Until next time, friends, please remember to stay healthy, stay safe, spread love, and spread hope.